so what is the point of the Tractatus? Why, why, why should we read it? Yeah, well, I'll just sorry. I'm just. I'll be back in a sec. Okay. Need to go and have a mental breakdown. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, welcome to this episode of Thoughts. Today I'm here with Alex and Nick Purchasnab, who is uh, doing a PhD at the University of Birmingham. Uh, with the working title, The Inexpressibility of Value in Wittgenstein. So here are some thoughts on Wittgenstein and value. Do you want to just give us a quick rundown, Nick, of what, how your PhD is going and maybe what the kind of the main aims are, if that's not too complicated a, a task? <laughs> yeah, that's fine. So... I'm doing a part-time PhD. At the moment, I am focusing on uh, the early Wittgenstein, so mainly the Tractatus. I might go into the lecture on ethics as well, but it's mainly the early Wittgenstein. And what I'm concerned to do is work out why Wittgenstein says that the purpose of the Tractatus is ethical when there's barely any ethics in it, it appears at the end. So in what sense is the Tractatus an ethical proposition? And what that's involved so far is me sort of working through the picture theory, coming to an understanding of what I think the picture theory is saying, and then looking at different interpretations of the Tractatus in order to try to then work out a kind of through line into the ethics that we see in the later work. So is there a, a continuity between the early work and the late work in terms of his ethical viewpoint? Right, so before we dive deep into all of that, um, could you give us maybe an overview of who Wittgenstein was? Why is he such an important figure? Why is it that it makes sense to say early Wittgenstein, late Wittgenstein, um, yeah. and so on? Okay, so um, Wittgenstein uh, was an Austrian philosopher. He was born in 1889, she hopes, and died in 1951. Interesting character in that he was born into this incredibly wealthy Austrian family and was considered, I think, by his parents to be, you know, the not so intelligent child and yet completely <laughs> overwhelmed Western philosophy. Um, he was born into this family of prodigies and um, he got interested in engineering and how things work, in taking things to pieces, which is exactly what he does with Western thought. Um, and he went to study in the UK, went to study aeronautical engineering essentially, before that kind of was a thing. And he got interested in, when he was studying engineering he got interested in the foundation of mathematics so rather than just using mathematics he got interested in in how numbers come to mean anything and what the structure what the foundations of mathematics is and so obviously talking about that people said to him well you need to go to you need to go and talk to Bertrand Russell about that who is the guy for the foundations of mathematics so he, he rocks up at <laughs> Bertrand Russell's rooms and basically says, I need to know whether maybe I might be a philosopher 
or if I might be crazy. <laughs> and then <Bertrand laughs> Russell basically says, OK, well, write me something then and I'll see whether or not I think you're a fool. And so Wittgenstein writes him something and Bertrand Russell basically says, OK, definitely come and study with me. You're a philosopher. And so he does until World War One breaks out, um, which puts a, a bit of a damper on the prospects for an Austrian <laughs> in the UK. Um, and so um, he goes back. He's in World War One keeps trying to get sent to the front. They keep sending him back because he's an engineer, um, <laughs> trying to put himself in danger all the time. He gets captured. He's a prisoner of war in Italy, um, which is basically where he writes the Tractatus, which is his first book. And he carries it around in his, in his knapsack in this kind of freezing cold Italian winter. Um, manages at the end of the war to get it, it sent to Bertrand Russell in the hope of getting it published. It, it does get published, gets published in um, in German in 1921, gets published in English in 1922. Bertrand Russell writes the introduction and, and Wittgenstein is just charmingly rude about the introduction. It kind of says, you have completely misunderstood what I'm trying to say here, which is fantastically ungrateful. Um, at some point he goes back, he, he works again, um, teaching, lecturing in philosophy. The Tractatus is his PhD, basically. And he keeps kind of trying to break away from philosophy and then being drawn back to it. He says that philosophy, you know, is, is just the kind of effort you work through it in order to be able to stop doing it. And uh, in the Second World War, he works as a hospital porter and dies of stomach cancer in 1951. He only publishes the Tractatus during his lifetime. The Philosophical Investigations, his later work, is published in 1953 posthumously. And then there are lots of collections of essays and, and notes from his students, which are all, again, published posthumously. The traditional view is that, the standard reading, is that the philosophy of the Tractatus is entirely different to the philosophy of the Philosophical Investigations, that, that he, he sets out a view in the Tractatus, which is um, called the picture theory of language, which is about uh, presenting a theory of how language represents the world. And that he, in the years between 1922 and towards the end of his life, when the philosophical investigations are written, he completely changes his mind and goes in a diametrically different direction. So the earlier Wittgenstein, the later Wittgenstein. More, I mean, I want to say more recently, but not all that recently, actually, from the sort of mid to late 80s onwards, there's been an alternative view which suggests that maybe there isn't that much difference, that the philosophical investigations actually represent a kind of working through of the ideas that he begins in the Tractatus, that the Tractatus actually kind of sets a direction up for his philosophy, but that he later realises that he was still in the grip of some um, misconceptions, which he was trying to dispel, but which he just didn't recognise in himself. And that by the time he gets to the philosophical investigations, he has a, a much clearer idea of, of where he was making errors in the Tractatus, but that the direction of travel is, is broadly the same. So even the statement that there is an earlier and a later Wittgenstein is kind of controversial. Unfortunately, everything about Wittgenstein is controversial. That's philosophy for you. Um, 
Right. So I, I think that was a great overview. And, and so now you leave us with no choice but to ask what's in the tractatus? What is the broad direction and what yeah. is the building blocks of that broad direction? Okay, so so tractatus, how can I say this uncontroversially, the tractatus presents for our consideration a picture theory of language. And in that picture theory, what Wittgenstein is setting out is an interpretation of how language comes to represent. How does language come by meaning? So, I mean, I think maybe for me, the way into that is just to think about um, false judgment. So this is an issue which goes back, you know, the Theotetus, Plato is, is talking about false judgment. So if we say that language represents the world, that language, that words have meaning by standing for objects, that proposition has meaning for representing a situation in the world, then philosophers have, have long been concerned by how does language which represents a lie, which represents falsehood, how can that be meaningful? So if I say that Donald Trump lost the 2020 American election, we go, well, yeah, okay, so that means, that gets meaning by representing a true state of affairs. But if, on the other hand, I say Donald Trump won the 2020 election, if that doesn't stand for an existing state of affairs, then that proposition, that sentence, shouldn't be a proposition at all. It shouldn't have any meaning. It should be literally nonsense. But if it's literally nonsense, we couldn't go about trying to disprove an assertion that Donald Trump won the 2020 election. If that did not signify, there would be no way that we could present evidence or even understand the sentence at all. We couldn't understand the utterance. We clearly can understand the utterance. So it can't be that all language gains meaning by representing an existing state of affairs. There must be something else going on. Okay, so in that case, we just say, well, we'll break it to pieces then. We'll break that, that statement, that utterance into pieces. There is Donald Trump. That's an existing entity. There is the 2020 American election. That's an existing entity and was an existing entity. And then there is the relationship of winning and the relationship of losing. And so what we're asserting is that these entities stand in a certain relationship to each other. And we can represent that either truly or falsely because we understand its component elements. And that's basically logical atomism. That's Bertrand Russell's kind of view. So that's fine, <laughs> we could say. But then we have to say, does it really work in exactly that way? So we have words which have meaning individual elements which have meaning even though they don't stand for objects in the world so I can meaningfully talk about the superman I can meaningfully talk about entities that don't exist and be understood they can if that wasn't the case then any proposition containing superman would be literally meaningless and that's not the case and then other entities have lots of different words that represent them so we have 
the Prime Minister of the UK, and we have Boris Johnson, and we have Alexander de Feffel Johnson, and we have Bojo, and we have the First Lord of the Treasury, and they all refer to the same referent, they all refer to the same thing. And that seems kind of like a strange way for language. How can all of those things represent the single entity? So Frege, <laughs> so we get to Frege, he says, well, we have sense and we have reference. The referent is the object to which it refers. So in this case, it's Boris Johnson. He's the referent of all of those terms. And then we have all of those terms, which are senses. In other words, they're like paths that lead you to the referent. They are all different routes to that referent. So sense is the route to the same referent, lots of paths converging on the same referent. And that offers one way of thinking about how language can relate to the world. We have a whole range of difficulties with that. So um, Russell, for example, thinks that can't be the case at all, because he thinks that when I talk about an object, I'm not talking about a a mental content, I'm talking about the object. So if I talk about Boris Johnson, I'm talking about Boris Johnson, not about my idea of Boris Johnson. He doesn't like that kind of distance. He wants a direct reference theory. Um, so we've got a lot of, of debate about that. So what Wittgenstein does is he basically comes into this confusion with Frege disagreeing with Russell and in a gorgeously polite way, but but they're, they're, they're trying to grapple with the way that language and words can have reference to particular objects in the world. And what he's particularly concerned with is he's particularly concerned with why certain judgments are meaningful and certain judgments aren't. So he says at one point, any theory of judgment has to make it impossible for me to judge that the table pen holders the book. So he wants to say, if we're right in thinking that logical atomism is the way to go, that we break it down into little sections and they stand in relation to each other, what determines what order and in what relationship those words have to exist in order to form a meaningful judgment? So the idea would be that, sorry to interrupt, just to break it down maybe. Um, so the idea would be that if, if logical atomism is true, that we can break down language into single bits, then there should be a way that those bits relate to each other or are organized that makes sense, which means yeah. by implication that there are ways that it doesn't make sense. And so now we have a verifiable theory to check. Is that what he was trying to do? Yeah, exactly. So um, Russell, for example, develops this whole theory of types in order to solve that problem. So there's the multiple theory of judgment and then the theory of type. So he's theorizing his way out of this problem, basically. Wittgenstein's having none of that because he says, no, when you start to make those theories, to what are those words in the theory referring? Like, where is the reference? So your theory is meaningless. So he really gives Russell such a tough time. I feel very sorry for Russell, who's only trying to help. Um, so what Wittgenstein does is he comes along and he says, look, it works like this. What happens is there are names and those names refer to objects. They are fundamental, simple, indivisible objects. And those names stand in particular relationship to each other in a proposition. 
And that relationship between the names in the proposition mirrors, has an isomorphic representation of the way that the objects stand in the world. So there's a sense when I explain this that it sounds like I'm talking about geography, which I'm not, but it's easier to grasp it if we just kind of talk geographically for a second and then we can expand it out. So he reads about a court case in Paris where the court is shown a representation of the traffic accident that's under discussion using model cars, using toy cars. And he says, okay, so what's happening is they're using this model and it is representing the way that the cars were in relationship to each other in the accident that they're talking about. It's a picture, it's a model of the accident. And it means that language does exactly the same thing. So when we use names, we place them, just like the toy cars, in relationship to each other that reflects the relationship of the cars that were in the actual accident. However, (laughs) false judgment again, back to false judgment, because we're saying, well, yeah, but that would mean that if you moved the blue car to the other side of the red car, then it would no longer be a picture, it would no longer be a model. And what Wittgenstein is saying is, no, that's not the case. The cars in the real world have certain organisational possibilities. There are certain ways that those cars can be organised. And in order to represent that, the objects that you're using in the court case have to obey the same organisational possibilities. So if I, I don't know, pick up one of those toy cars and throw it at the judge, it's no longer representing the the organisational possibilities of the cars in the court case. So any way that I arrange the cars in my model, either is a true or a false representation of the actual accident. So I I can move the blue car to a position that it wasn't in, in the actual accident. And it's a false representation. I can put it in the place where it was, and it's a true representation. As long as I obey the organisational possibilities, the logical possibilities of the cars as they were in the in the actual situation, as long as I obey those logical possibilities, then I'm representing the accident, and the picture makes sense. So it's not that they have to exactly represent, it's just that they have to have the same possibilities. You could think about when you're having one of those dinner party conversations, when the wine bottle's almost empty over the dinner table, and and you're trying to explain some situation to a friend, and you say, okay, so here's the pepper pot, and this is Jim. And Jim, the pepper pot, has to only do things that Jim, the real Jim, could do. If you start, I don't know, emptying out the pepper pot and, you know, brushing the pepper off the table, the person that you're talking to will go, I have no idea what you're talking about now. This this doesn't make any sense. I don't understand. It becomes meaningless. So as long as the model is doing the things that can happen in the real world, then it's fine. It's a meaningful picture. Once you start messing with the logical possibilities, it's no longer a picture. So that gets us over the problem we were talking about before. If we are making our propositions, arranging the names in a way that it's possible for the objects in the world to be arranged, then it's it makes sense. So the pen holder can't table the book because that isn't a picture of anything. Those aren't logical possibilities of those entities. Whereas, you know, the red car was 
going too fast and it ran over the pedestrian. Yeah, makes perfect sense, even if it's false. How, I mean, you, you mentioned um, the Superman earlier and how that, that's a false representation. How does that still fit within that framework that you've just explained? Yeah, so, um, so Superman has certain logical possibilities. Mm-hmm. They aren't that he comes to tea. <laughs> if somebody tells you Superman came to tea, you'd have to say, I don't understand what you're trying to say. You think, are you are you using that metaphorically? Are you, what, how, I don't understand what that means. It doesn't really mean anything until they explain what they mean by Superman, because it's clearly not the Superman that you're thinking about. So Superman, even though he's not a real person, sorry, <laughs> if anybody was, <laughs> he was, but it, Superman has certain logical, that name has certain logical possibilities. And there are certain things that Superman can do and certain things he can't do. And when you start talking about him doing things he can't do, then that proposition no longer makes sense. Okay. So is this all happening at the at the Tractatus? All, all, is all this reasoning that's going on happening at the Tractatus point in Wittgenstein's history or is, have we got into later on? No, this is all early Wittgenstein. <laughs> uh, and there's, uh, you know, huge amounts more of it as well it's um so the the grundgedank the big idea of the tractatus is that logical operators don't represent so russell thinks that things like and and or and if and then represent some kind of notional entity that they have meaning because they represent something a bit says no that's not the case at all those logical operators don't represent anything at all and in order to show that, he uses truth tables. So he comes up with a truth table. He says that, right, okay, so I can take a proposition and I can represent it with a truth table. If it's raining, then I will take my umbrella. Yeah, so you can represent that with a truth table. And the logical operators are just a way of representing that in the same way a truth table is a way of representing that. So the truth table shows which propositions are true and which propositions are false and the logical operators do exactly the same thing but they don't represent anything in themselves so that's that's kind of the big idea so in a proposition there will be names which represent things then they will be arranged in an isomorphic representation with the objects in the world and then there will be the logical operators which demonstrate which elementary proposition in your utterance is true and which is false and you can change the logical operators and make as many different propositions as you like um, and they'll all be meaningful and in fact he later goes on to um, demonstrate that the the n operator the multiple negation is the only logical operator you need you can get rid of all the ands and ifs and ases and ifs and thens by just replacing it with multiple negation over and over again so he reduces logic just to one operation, one logical operation. That's getting a bit kind of logicy, logicy. But <laughs> yeah, that takes quite a long time as well. <laughs> Still, all early Wittgenstein. So, like a, a big proportion of the tractatus is just him showing off his mathematical skills. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and things that. I mean, he's so cryptic. He's so deeply cryptic. And he says at the beginning in the in the preface, he says, basically, unless you've already thought this stuff, this isn't going to mean anything to you. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so uh, he's saying, you know, it, it's all true. 
for, for a given value of true. He's saying, you know, here is an absolute working out to the final position of a particular view of the way that language works. So you take a position which is fundamental to like Russell and to Frege, and you work it through and work it through and work it through. And the picture theory is what you get. By the end of it, I mean, this is the twist. By the end of it, he says, and by the way, it's all nonsense. (laughs) If you've understood the Tractatus correctly, you will now, of course, have noticed that the whole thing is nonsense. At which point, you know, you've struggled through the, the, the multiple negation and you've struggled through the argument for, this, for the fundamental indivisibility of names. And you just go, oh, that was so cruel. That was so mean. But of course, he's completely right. One of the things that he does in the Tractatus is he demonstrates the kind of basic principle of bivalency that that a true proposition or a false proposition, a meaningful proposition of any kind must be capable of being both true and false. That's just to do with the way that we've just talked about, you know, it has to have that relationship with the objects in the world and the world is contingent. And so any proposition which represents the world must be contingent. So the red car is behind the blue car, the red car is not behind the blue car. Those are meaningful propositions because they can be either true or false. All meaningful propositions have to be either true or false. But most of the utterances of the tractators are talking about the essential nature of names and the essential nature of propositions and the essential nature of logical operators. So that means that none of those utterances can be meaningful because they're not capable of being falsified, essentially. They can't be bivalent. They are necessarily true or necessarily false. And he's shown us already that because the logical operators do not represent, then something which is essentially true, something which is necessarily true, can't be representing something in the world. Most of the statements of the tractators do that. So they are meaningless. And the ones that aren't meaningless are nonsense. And so then we have to say, what are we supposed to do with that? And that's where the controversy really gets going. That's where people start to get seriously kind of exorcised about that kind of problem. So some people just go, look, ignore that bit. (laughs) Ignore when he says it's nonsense. Let's see what we can make of the rest of it. The logic seems really sound. Let's see what we can take from it. Then you get the standard interpretation, which I'll try and be fair to. Um, (laughs) The standard interpretation is that you can't, strictly speaking, say these things, but you can kind of hint at them. You can show them even though you can't say them. So it is, it is nonsense, but only in the strictest terms. We can, we can see what he means by them. We can see what those statements would have meant had they not been nonsense. So that interpretation, it's basically hacker's reading, is saying, well, okay, so he's saying you can't strictly speaking say these things, but we, we understand them anyway, and they are useful and helpful to us. And then mid to late 80s, there's a, a different kind of reading, which is the James Conant, Cora Diamond, Alice Crary reading, 
which is called the resolute reading. And the resolute reading says, look, he says it's nonsense. Let's just take him at his word. Let's let's believe him. When he says it's nonsense, let's believe that it's nonsense. So it is literally insignificant. It is literally meaningless. And then we're in some difficulty because we've worked through all of that stuff and it did seem to all hang together. And so what was the point in it? If, if he's just written these, you know, 100 pages of really dense logic just to at the end go, ha ha, and it's all meaningless, we fooled you, that, that seems cruel and unusual. And so what is the point of the Tractatus if it's nonsense? And more recently, we've got different readings moving on from that. So we've got like McManus's reading, um, got Marie McGinn's reading, which is trying to, she says, find a middle way between the standard reading and the resolute reading of people trying to say, well, OK, so what is the point of the Tractatus? What's it really trying to do if, as he tells us, it is without meaning, it is nonsense? And that that's where the readings have gone now is, is a development of a broadly resolute reading, which tries to address some of the criticisms of the resolute reading which has been put forward by people like Hacker who say well but you can't say that this whole book is nonsense and yet it's still worth anybody reading why would that be the case I mean so some people like Marie McGinn says that her reading is a middle way between resolution and the ineffability reading the standard reading that that it's only strictly speaking nonsense but I just kind of think it's either resolute or it's not it either is nonsense or it's not. You can't, it, it doesn't make any sense to say, well, there, there is a middle ground between nonsense and not nonsense. And so I think, I mean, I really like Marie McGinn's reading, but I think it's a resolute reading because I think she's saying, okay, this, he's saying it's nonsense and we have to take that seriously. Now, what can we get from the Tractatus? And that, I think, is exactly the same place that, that Dennis McManus is at. He's saying, OK, so it's nonsense. We understand that. What's the point of it? Where is it going? Why should we read it? So what is the point of the Tractatus? Why, why, why should we read it? Yeah. I'll just, sorry, I'm just, I'll be back in a sec. OK. I need to go and have a mental breakdown. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Jonah took Wittgenstein to heart. <laughs> okay, so uh, what is the point? Um, so I think that the point is to take a particular way of thinking to which we are prone, yeah, to which philosophers are prone. <laughs> Ordinary people don't often get themselves in this kind of a pickle. Um, so take a particular view of the way that meaning and language and the world works and work it through really carefully and very thoroughly to its logical conclusion and show that that logical conclusion is incoherent. And not just to demonstrate that theoretically, but to take the reader with you on that journey saying, okay, if language represents like this, if meaning is derived from a picture what does that mean and getting the reader to accept those conclusions step by step by step quite painfully through the tractatus until you get to the very end of it when you see that the position that he's brought you to leads to this absolutely incoherent position 
So what he does is he dismantles that that view of the way that language works. He says that's just not coherent. That just doesn't work. And we have to, if you like, find that tendency in ourselves, which thinks that language works by representing in that way and dismiss it. It doesn't make any coherent sense. And I think what he's doing there is part of a project which he's always concerned about, which is to show that philosophical problems are not real problems. So philosophical problems are the kind of pickle that we get ourselves in with a particular view of the way that the world works. Um, could, you, could you give a bit, uh, um, some examples of, of philosophical problems and, and why, when applied through the logic of uh, the tractatus, why they're... Um, yeah. I think so, we would say meaningless, but... Um, yeah, yeah. So, for example, um, think about all that business about the soul. Um, <laughs> so, you know, philosophers, philosophically, we're looking for the soul the whole time. And, and we're getting into that whole um, that whole Plato thing, you know, because we have a, a name, there must be a thing which is named. And we go around looking for the soul, you know, investigating. Where can it be? Oh, it's probably manipulating a gland in your brain, Descartes thinks. Well, no, <laughs> this whole problem, this whole difficulty is simply a difficulty about the way that language represents or the ontological argument for the existence of God. Oh, what is God? By definition, God is that than which nothing greater can be conceived. So that means that God must therefore logically exist. No, <laughs> no, you're thinking that language represents in a certain way and that's got you into a particular cycle or Anthony Flew does this really lovely use of wisdom's story about the gardener he says the two travelers come to a clearing in the jungle and one says oh see there must be a gardener who cares for this clearing it's so beautiful and the other says there's no gardener and they disagree about that and they set up uh, an electric fence and they set up bloodhounds and they search and wait for the gardener who never comes and the the one who believes there's a gardener says, oh, yeah, well, it must be that the gardener is invisible or immaterial or, <laughs> you know, ineffable in some way. And Flew says, well, eventually you have qualified your idea of the gardener so much that there's nothing that the gardener now means. It's invisible. It's ineffable. It's, it's not a gardener. And so that seems like it's a problem about how can we talk about God? How can we talk about faith? How can we meaningfully state beliefs? And it's not. It's a question about meaning. It's a question of how does language come to mean or represent something? So what Wittgenstein, I think, is saying is that all of those philosophical problems are problems which we've got into because we have the wrong idea about the way that language represents the world. And he's always concerned not to solve philosophical problems, but to dissolve them. It's always about dissolution and not resolution. And it's, um, it's something which he does, I think, throughout his career. He's always saying, let's try to demonstrate that this philosophical problem is, is not a problem at all. It, it's just an error in the way that we think language works. But we can, we can dissolve it, we can make it go away just by refining our idea of how language represents. Does he put forth a way to organize language that would make more sense? Yeah. So later Wittgenstein is concerned with language as a tool. 
language isn't a picture anymore because language I think never was a picture <laughs> um, but language is a tool and meaning is use so the example that I always use is um, you've got a girl out with her boyfriend on a date, and she says oh I'm cold and the boyfriend says well yes indeed it is it is chilly this time of year <laughs> and she you know slaps him and walks away because she's that wasn't what she meant. <laughs> what she meant was put your arm around me or give me your jacket or it was a moment for you know a cute little boyfriend girlfriend moment so the meaning of I'm cold is not I'm cold the meaning of I'm cold is give me a jacket and it's always about context and it's always about use so language words are levers and not pictures they're they're designed to make something happen in the world they're a tool for interaction they are very rarely propositional if um if false judgment is a problem for picture theory would a problem uh, like a similar problem for language games be maybe if you're talking to yourself or you're maybe if you like keep a diary that you never want anyone else to see <laughs> would that would that maybe be a problem for, lang for language games yeah. I mean, I think there's always something that we're using it for. So even if that's introspection, it's still a purpose, isn't it? It's still, you know, it's in order to form a particular kind of <laughs> relationship with the facts of your life. And, and so I don't think, yeah, I don't think it is necessarily a problem. And we've learned it interactionally. So that kind of is where we go with ethics, really. So if you think about how you've learned language, you've learned it in a particular ethical context. And so even when you use language and you don't think you're doing anything ethical with it, you absolutely are. Because the way that you've come to form a particular kind of worldview through your use of language has an ethical direction. So when Wittgenstein says the point of the Tractatus is ethical, I mean, it absolutely is because everything is ethical. Ethics is not a branch of philosophy. Ethics isn't a discrete area of language use. Ethics is everything. And, and most especially ethics is understanding how ethics is interlaced through every kind of utterance that we make. It's a particular worldview that we express with every utterance and more especially with something that we're saying to ourselves, more especially with your journal example. It's absolutely fundamentally ethical because it's about a certain relationship with truth and a certain relationship with the world and a certain relationship with other people, which is grounded in the ethics that we've learned through our culture, through our language. I really like that. Um, is there a way to construct an ethical outlook? And, and so can we say that this ethical outlook is better? And can we say that in, in a true sense? Yeah. <laughs> so. He's, he's distrustful. I mean, you can see him as distrustful of philosophical theory. So you think about, um, about Russell constructing theory after theory in order to fix this view of representation. And Wittgenstein is saying, no, this, this is not the way to solve this problem. We want to, we want to dissolve the theory. We don't want to build more theory into this. And I think that is probably the same for an ethical view. So he's really concerned with the idea of decency, um, perhaps slightly more later Wittgenstein, but, but decency is kind of his, almost like his ethical watchword, really. 
And there's a sense that that means kind of being true to your own ethical insight. We're getting a little bit more speculative now. But what I think is going on is, is he is distrustful of ethical theory because ethical theory allows you to act in, I'm going to use a, a term from existentialism, but allows you to act in bad faith. If you take uh, an example where somebody does something unspeakable, somebody, oh, I don't know, um, tortures a prisoner that they're holding captive and they will say, well, I had to do that. I had to commit this unspeakable act because it was necessary for me to, um, you know, create the greatest happiness of the greatest number. And in torturing my suspect, I have gained valuable intelligence, which will protect the innocent in the future. So they might say, well, you know, I obviously I didn't want to do it and I felt horribly squeamish about it. And it was awful pulling out this person's fingernails. But I've done it because I was morally obliged to do it by theory, actually. It's like the theory that justifies the unspeakable behavior. And we can see that, you know, if you think about like Max Stirner, who says, you know, we're in the grip of spooks when we subjugate our own value. You know, we, we sacrifice ourselves for some cause or whatever. And that's kind of what we do with ethical principles. We sign up to a particular set of moral rules and norms and they permit us and justify us in acting against our own moral intuitions and beliefs. So we think it's okay to torture, or we think it's okay to suicide bomb, or we think it's okay to, I don't know, deny women the right to an abortion, because we are obliged to behave in those ways by our moral principles. And it, the problem with that is that sometimes that leads us into the view that Wittgenstein is a, is a cultural relativist, and I don't think that's the case. But it's definitely the case that he sees all of language as kind of a network with our ethical understanding. And so that, you know, any kind of language use has an ethical element. Think about how we learn to use language generally. We don't learn it in isolation. We don't learn discrete elements of language, but we learn a network of language and we learn it. So I think that we learn language by learning the limits of the application of a term. We learn a new word as a child and then we will, we will overgeneralize that term. So you teach a child the term pig um, and then the child will call everything a pig for a certain amount of time. You know, the dog will be a pig and the coffee table will be a pig. And you have to intervene there and you have to say, no, no, that's not a pig. <laughs> that's a coffee table. That's not a pig. That's the dog. So you learn the limits. You learn when the child learns when it is appropriate to say pig and when it is when it's going to be corrected for saying pig. Then if you think about learning good or wicked or <laughs> um, evil what you learn is what kinds of behaviors can we apply that term to so in just the same way as we learned pig we learn evil when is it appropriate to use the word evil the limits of that term and the child will have learned limits for the applications of those terms and that's going to form their understanding of what a judgment is at all so they will recognize what any kind of judgment is in the context of the kinds of 
judgments that they've seen made. And they might come across somebody who has completely different kinds of judgments, completely different ways of judging, and they won't even recognize that they are judgments. They won't go, oh, your judgment is incorrect. They won't even see that what's happening there is a judgment, which is when we're getting perilously close to, to cultural relativism again, because we're sort of saying, you know, my society makes these judgments. This society, I've no idea what's going on because they don't even recognize that their judgments are judgments because they're so different. Their capacity for judgment just doesn't even relate to what I think I'm doing when I'm judging. And that's why it's so difficult to understand like the moral practices of a different group, even in your own society, because you can't see, it seems like they have no capacity for judgment at all. And in order to get on board with their system, we would have to live their life, which is impossible. I think that's quite a good place to end. Actually, I, I don't know if. Uh... I don't anymore. <laughs> yeah. Standing more bit good stuff. Well, um, thanks for very much for for coming on. No problem at all. Thanks very much. Okay. Bye. 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 Thanks everybody for listening to this episode. Have a good one.